Mark, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, let's talk about the Nationals very quickly in terms of yesterday and the activity. They wind up getting uh, three of their main guys uh, signed, uh, being arbitration eligible. Uh, Tanner Roark, uh, Anthony Rendon, and also Michael A. Taylor. Uh, the Rendon signing, that's a pretty pretty hefty raise for Anthony. Uh, yeah, $12 million after making five and some change last year. And uh, I don't think anyone's going to dispute that he's not worth it because yeah. he had a phenomenal season for them and continues to really um, elevate himself into one of, if not the best all-around third baseman in baseball. And that's some high praise because there are some outstanding third basemen in the game right now, and he stands right there with all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Marcus. He, doesn't the, he doesn't get the attention you know, that a lot of the other guys on this team do, and part of that is by his own design because he doesn't seek the attention. But um, I think more and more around baseball, people are recognizing just how good Anthony Rendon is. Hey, Mark, I don't, I don't get – and thanks for doing the show today. We really appreciate getting the insights because we try and keep our fans up to uh, date with national comings and goings. Uh, I don't see the Nationals as often as you or Craig, but I do see them – enough and it seems like Rendon aside from the number the pure numbers he's put up that he has now evolved into a more or less a leadership role on that team I mean he's not Brian Zimmerman but it seems like he's one of the leaders on this team and with Jason Worth gone that may be even more important than than it was before well I think on the field stand yes yeah Um, he he is a a guy that uh, they turn to and that they count on to lead now in the clubhouse that's not his personality yep um and i don't know that's ever going to be just it's just not the way that he operates but that's fine you don't need to be that guy um what he does is he's a guy that you know every single day he's going to take the field he doesn't ask for days off um you know he plays the game it, it's funny because at times if there's ever a criticism of him it can appear at times that he's a little lackadaisical out there but really that's just who he is that's his uh personality and it works for him because he's so loose and carefree that he doesn't ever get caught up in the moment and um, doesn't panic and doesn't show any of those kind of signs but every once in a while some people will question if he doesn't care enough or doesn't play the game hard enough and uh, truth be told he actually does it's just he makes it look so easy and he's found a balance there of being able to be loose and carefree and that actually brings out the best in him uh, it may not be the kind of thing that everyone can do, but it certainly works for him, and it, it really does make him into a consistently elite ball player. Mark, let me ask you about uh, uh, Michael A. Taylor from this standpoint. Uh, you, we, we saw him last year at the beginning of the year. He winds up getting hurt. But then when he came back, uh, Dusty Baker at that time, manager of the Nationals, told him, look, you've had several opportunities to to, to – pull out the talent that everybody knows you have. And this is another opportunity. Don't mess it up. And really, he didn't. He took the bull by the horns and had a great year for the Nationals. And, and you know, one of the main cogs of this team, uh, out plays great center field, uh, really came into his own offensively last year. Uh, what do you think, you know, flipped the switch for him last year? I think it was, well, a couple things. One, the fact that, team still trusted him and gave him the opportunity. He had had chances each of the previous two years 
to become the starting center fielder because somebody else got hurt. And in each case, he wasn't able to uh, to seize those opportunities. And you got to that point last year where uh, when Adam Eaton went down, all of a sudden they needed a center fielder again. And I, there were plenty of people, and I'll admit myself included, that questioned whether Taylor was really deserved a third opportunity for that. And the fact that the team stood by him, he had a, um, a big uh, supporter in Dusty Baker, in particular, I think that went a long way to help his confidence. Uh, so that was number one. And then number two, what he really did last year, and we've seen it from some other guys in the past, Wilson Ramos is the one that I think of the most in this regard, is that here's a guy who was a free swinger uh, throughout his career up to this point. A guy who the book was pretty clear. You throw him breaking balls down and away, and he's going to chase. You don't have to throw him pitch over the plate. But what he did is, number one, he started finally having the patience to take those pitches that were off the plate. And then number two, the pitches that were on the corner or just off or you know, a little on the outside, he figured out the most important thing for so many young hitters. Don't try to pull it. Hit it back up the middle. And mm-hmm. he... So many of his big hits last year were doubles and even home runs to center field and right center field. Think about the grand slam at Wrigley Field in the playoffs ah. to right center field. Um, that was kind of Michael A. Taylor's season encapsulated right there. Anybody, any hitter who can figure out that, making that leap and can be able to do that, I think that shows a, a great sign of maturity and progression as a hitter, the kind of thing that should sustain itself and not just be a one-year fluke. That home run thing was uh, from Taylor in that series was one of the great uh, moments for the Nationals because that was a rainy day, the wind was blowing in, and who knew that that he had enough power to get that thing out to right field. Yeah, none of us there thought, I think it even included everyone in the dugout, they had the same thought when the ball went in the air, oh, that's going to be caught probably at the warning track, and it just kept going, and it cleared just enough to get there. And I mean, I know the team wound up you know, losing in the series, and there's a lot of heartbreak there and a lot of questions about the team after it. But on a personal level, for Michael A. Taylor, that that was a huge moment, and the series was huge for him because he had a fantastic series. Um, and that's only going to help him coming into this next season, the confidence that he gained from really rising to the occasion in those big moments. We're talking with Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. He does a super job covering the Washington Nationals. Obviously, uh, Mark... The biggest change on the Nationals for the 2018 season from the past couple is that Dusty Baker is out. Dave Martinez has been in. What is your early read on Martinez and how comfortable he's going to be in this role? He's wanted a manager's job for a long time, and now he's got one. Yeah, you know, Stan, he's said all the right things so far. He's, every opportunity that he's had, um, you know, he's gotten positive reviews. Uh, but it really is going to boil down to once, first of all, he's down there in West Palm Beach on the practice field with these guys. That's when you really get to know them when they start to get a sense of what kind of manager he's going to be. That's going to be number one. And then the other thing, and there's no way to practice for this, is once you get into the season and once you face some adversity, whatever it is, it's always going to be something, whether it's a problem with the bullpen or discord within the clubhouse or something involving the lineup or injuries or whatever it is, it's going to happen. That's when you find out really what a manager is made of and how he's able to keep the team together. Not when things are going well, but when things are going poorly. And that's going to be the test for him. I mean, look, he's had plenty of training. 
for this, uh, 10 years serving under Joe Madden in Tampa Bay and Chicago. The, the other thing I like about him is that, you know, there's, obviously there's so much pressure on the Nationals, especially this year, given that Harper and Murphy are free agents and the history of uh, them in the playoffs here the last few years. But think about where Dave Martinez just came from, a place that had the ultimate pressure on it two years ago to break the longest curse in sports history. And what were the Cubs good at when it came to that whole thing? They embraced it. They didn't shy away from that. And Dave has talked about that uh, same thing as it pertains to the Nationals. It doesn't do any good to sort of ignore the big elephant in the room. They all know what the history of the Nationals is. They all know how much is at stake this year. It's okay to embrace that. Uh, you know, you don't want it to consume you, but it's okay to understand that that's what the overriding theme is, and now you go out and just go play your best and try to overcome that, and it's sort of a common goal for all of them. So uh, we'll see how that manifests itself once he's out there with the players, but I do think he has the right mental approach to all of this. At what point do you think that changed, Mark, last year? Because in the playoffs, we're talking with Mike Rizzo down on the field, and he's talking about Dusty getting an extension, and they're working on it, and then all of a sudden they lose game five, and before you know it, it's the, 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 the mantras change. Not that every team doesn't want to win a World Series or try to win a World Series, but then all of a sudden it's, well, just getting there isn't good enough anymore. We've got to, we, you know, we've got to win the World Series. It's not good enough if we don't. Yeah, it, I don't know that you can necessarily point to one moment, although I, mean, I think it's fair to question that if they had won Game 5 in advance, would Dusty Baker still be the manager of this team? Um, I don't think that's fair that that would have determined it because there's so much else involved in a team's success, or, and you're going to boil it down to one game uh, in which a whole lot of things went wrong, most of them not really involved in the manager. But I think the key point, and I've said it before, is we have to be careful not to look at this as what Rizzo was saying throughout the season and think of this more as an ownership decision because mm-hmm. I really do believe that it was. Uh, I believe that Mike Rizzo endorsed bringing Dusty Baker back. I think ownership, and particularly Ted Lerner at the top, um, felt that Dusty had gotten two opportunities, that there were some things that had gone wrong, especially in the playoffs, uh, the way that the would Strasburg start game four or not, the way that was handled in that press conference, different managerial decisions along the way. I think they just looked at that and said, can we do better? And at least among the people who mattered the most, who ultimately had to, to make the decision, they felt like they could do better. And I think the other part of all this, and I wrote about this at the time, was if Dusty had been on a three-year contract all along, if he had another year to go, I think they'd probably retain him. I don't think yeah. they're going to eat a year of, of salary. Uh, but because his contract was up and because great point, yeah, they yeah. weren't going to at that point give him now a two-year extension, because let's say the same thing happens again in 2018. Well, now you've had three straight years. You're going to give him a fourth chance. Right. Yeah. So uh, really, this to me, it, it goes all the way back to the fact that they only gave him a two-year contract to begin with, something they had done with every previous manager. And now, finally, for the first time, really under pressure because the rest of the baseball world uh, does it Does this it way. this way, yeah. yeah. Yep, they finally gave Dave Martinez three years, a guy who has no experience, when they wouldn't give it for Dusty Baker. But I do believe if they had just followed the industry convention, 
at the beginning. They'd have given Dusty yeah. Baker three years. He's probably still around now. That's well, a, they they give Mart. That's, Mar- a, that's give, a great point. Yeah, Mark. it is, and they yeah. give Martinez three years. But we also see at what money, and that also tells you what do you get ten, for or is it more? What, what did he get for no, the three it's years? About, no, uh, it's about two million in total. Two million so. total. Two million yeah. total. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and and when you stop to think about that, I mean the whole knock uh, on the Nats. I make more than that. Yeah, <laughs> right. The whole knock on the Nats, though, Mark, is that you know they don't pay their managers. Sure, and and that's another fair point that if you were going to bring back Dusty, and he had sort of made it clear all along. Look, he had taken a below market deal in order to get back in the yeah. game two years ago, and he realize. wanted to be paid commensurate with what someone of his experience should make. And uh, Look, they, Joe Girardi was available, still is available, but that wasn't necessarily a direction they wanted to go, maybe in part because of the money. It, it is fascinating that a team that, look, they have one of the highest payrolls in baseball. They're not afraid to spend money on players. They're going to go over the luxury tax probably again this year. For whatever reason, they do not value the managerial position nope. the same way and believe that that is worth the money. Now, look, all that said, were there baseball reasons, legitimate reasons to say maybe they could do better than Dusty Baker? Sure, absolutely. Um, but uh, obviously the financial aspects of this played a role in all. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, I know you uh, are a college football fan because Mark is a Northwestern grad, okay? okay. So Big Ten guy. Uh, we find out, uh, Mark, that uh, Keith Jackson, sad note, dies last night at the age of 89. And I don't know about you, but when I think college football and one voice, it's Keith Jackson's voice. No, I, I agree. That's one of those seminal voices and you know that you associate just with one sport. And I was thinking about it, I just heard it about a half hour ago. I was remembering how, so I was at Northwestern in the mid-'90s. Uh, and in 1995 is when we had our magic run to the Rose Bowl. Gary Barnett, which was yeah. the first time in 47 years they had gone to any bowl game. And I was thinking about how there, you know there were great moments that season. They beat Notre Dame to start the year. They beat Michigan on the road. But maybe the biggest moment, to be honest, was they had a November game against Penn State, a home game, and it was announced the week before that ABC was going to do the game and Keith Jackson was going to be on the call. Mm-hmm. And for those of us there, that just it blew your mind because yeah. Keith Jackson, he's not, he doesn't do a Northwestern game. Right, Come on. Right. He's coming to Northwestern. He's going to be in the press box. And I just remember being in awe of that. And we were, those of us at the student paper, we tried to sneak our way up into the, uh, the booth before the game to try to give him a copy of our paper, our preview of the game. We didn't actually get in. We had to give it to some uh, stage manager or producer or something. But just the idea that Keith Jackson was going to be on campus calling a game at Northwestern was unfathomable to all of us. That's how much he meant. That's how big he was uh, to the sport. So it's very sad to hear that news today. But, um, man, between him and Dick Enberg now in the last couple of weeks, certainly that's my youth right there. Those two voices are two that I listened to entirely growing up, uh, certainly involved in every big football game. We're talking with Mark Zuckerman of Madison Sports. Uh, Everybody knows the relationship that Scott Boros has held with uh, the owner of the Washington Nationals, Ted Lerner. He seems to be able to circumvent and go around Mike Rizzo quite often. Do you look at any of who he's got available this year and see a fit? Because I look at the Nationals, there's no question – Scherzer and Strasburg at the top are are great, but after that, as as proven in the playoffs the last couple of years, it, very suspect. Um, uh, do you see a fit with a Jake Arrieta and Alex Cobb or one of the other pitchers 
that um, is represented by Scott Boris? Well, Scott Boris is trying to make them interested in Jake Arrieta, I can tell you that, yeah. because those uh, rumors started floating at the winter meeting. And the way it was described to me at the time uh, by someone, it was, I asked, is this a case of you guys actually being interested in Arietta or Scott trying to make you be interested in Arietta? And they said it's the latter. Right. <laughs> uh, now, that doesn't mean that it won't happen, because we've seen he's been able to do this before. They weren't in on Max Scherzer initially a few years ago, and all of a sudden it was late January. He still hadn't been signed, uh, and Boris was able to get directly to Ted Lerner and say, hey, you know, I think this is a guy who can help you. And that move paid off brilliantly. So let's not make it sound like these are necessarily bad deals uh, in the end when, when Scott Boris pushes these. There, there's a case to be made for it, certainly, whether it's Arietta or someone else. You know, at the moment, they have four qualified, experienced starting pitchers. Are you, so who, who are you including? Rourke is the fourth? And, and yeah, Gonzalez yeah. and, and, yeah. and Tanner Rourke. Now, yeah. Uh, and just look, as if you need to get through a season, those are guys who are going to give you 30 starts and you know what you're going to mm-hmm. get. They've had good moments, they've had bad moments, et cetera. But <laughs> they don't really have a proven number five guy. And they've got young guys like Eric Fetty and A.J. Cole that has re-signed Edwin Jackson to a minor league deal. So in theory, you say, well, they probably need a fifth starter. But to me, what they need is not a number five starter what they need if they're going to make a move is a number three starter. Right. Because they can get through the regular season fine. I mean, last year, Joe Ross pitched the first half of the year. Edwin Jackson pitched the second half of the year. They collectively had a five ERA between them. The team still had a winning record in the games that they started uh, because the offense was so good, and they won the division by 20 games. Right. So, look, they don't need a number five starter. They, they can be just fine with who they have. But if you get back to October, who, besides Scherzer and Strasburg, are you putting out there that you're confident can win you a big game? Gio Gonzalez, for all the good that he's done in uh, now, what, six years mm-hmm. in D.C., his playoff track record is not good at all. He has never made it through five innings or beyond fifth inning. Uh, he's never had a quality start. He's never even had a decision because he's come out of the game so early in most of these cases, and we saw it happen in Game 5 last year. So, to me... If they have a way of acquiring someone, and that can be now or even be in in July if they need to make a move in season, that to me would be a priority, getting someone else that you know you can put out there for a do-or-die game in October that can help you win uh, as opposed to somebody who's going to make 30 starts over the season and be your number five starter. It was interesting. You mentioned a, a whole host of you know the guys beyond Scherzer and Strasburg, and Joe Ross was only mentioned that he pitched last year. What's his status going into spring training this year, and is he is he a bounce back candidate at all in the eyes of them, or he's still hurt? Well, yeah, not until mid season because he had okay. Tommy John surgery. Yeah, Tommy. Okay, July. I did not know he had Tommy John yeah. surgery. So uh, it's going to be mid season at the earliest before it comes back. And now, hey, look, maybe it does. Maybe he's that guy by the end of the season. But I don't know that they can count on that happening. Um, track record is very good with guys returning from the injury, yep. but it's not 100%. And here's a guy who had his moments, but, um, you know, had not really proven himself quite yet as a uh, consistently a strong big league starting pitcher. So, you know, Eric Fetty also is uh, their number one prospect. We barely got a glimpse of him last year. Um, he ended the season with a sort of minor injury, and they just decided to shut him down from overuse. So, look, he may step up and be that guy as well. They do have potential options there. Um, but as far as sure things, they don't really have that guy that I think 
ultimately when you get to October, you want to have in a rotation. Health, health-wise, is Adam Eaton ready, you know, raring to go and ready and healthy? Yeah, he says so. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he's a good, now, what, nine months removed from the ACL surgery. So I right. think, yeah, it's been a different time of year, maybe he would be ready to go. But um, it, the team is trying to tell him, hey, take it easy. You don't need to push this too soon. Uh, I know you want to be ready first day of spring training, but we're going to ease you into it. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no reason to, to push it too fast. Um, but, boy, here's a guy, and I think we, we forget just how good he was for those four weeks before he got hurt. You betcha. And what a difference he made on their lineup. Um, if he resembles anything like what we saw for that first month of the season, and now you have Eaton and Trey Turner at the top of your lineup in front of all the big guys, uh, I think that makes a huge difference, and we're finally going to find out why they were willing to trade all those top pitching prospects to get him. What we saw from him was evidence of that, um, but we're going to need to see more of it now over a full season. Uh, I've got two quickies. One is sort of not under Nat's coverage, so to speak, and that is Jason Worth. What are you hearing of anybody interested in him are the Nats at all interested in bringing him back for one-year deal? Uh, what are you hearing on Jason Worth? What I've heard is, um, number one, he is determined to come back and show that he still has a lot of career left in him. Well, we know he's uh, not dead yet because he's already told us that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so he's out in Arizona, or at least for part of the winter has been in Arizona working at a performance uh, uh, facility out there, really working hard. And Look, I think it's killing him that he hasn't signed yet, but I think the realistic uh, explanation is with so many other free agents unsigned, still at this late date of the offseason, he's just going to have to wait until all those big names come off the board. He is way down the priority list for most teams. And so I would not be surprised if it gets to February, and even if teams are starting to report for spring training and he's still getting a job or looking for a job. Um, to me, the fascinating question is going to be what kind of team is going to offer him what kind of playing time? In all likelihood, a team that's going to offer him any kind of substantial role is probably not going to be a contending team, or at least not a team that's expected to contend. So is he willing to do that after spending all these years with the Phillies and the Nationals where he was on winning teams in almost every case? Um, or is he willing to take a lesser role if there is a team that has a chance to contend that's offering him a spot on the bench. That, to me, is going to be the fascinating question. As far as the Nationals go, um, I think both sides kind of understood at the end of the season that that was going to be the end of it. Not that they don't love each other, not that they don't respect what he meant to the organization, but at this point they can't give him a starting job. And to be honest, they're really deep in young outfielders as well, so they're probably set from a backup standpoint. So... I don't know that it makes sense other than from a clubhouse leadership standpoint to use a roster spot on him, and I think he understands that and recognizes that. Last question I have for you is, here in Baltimore, Manny Machado just signed yesterday, avoiding arbitration, $16 million. Here in Baltimore, it's pretty much a fait accompli that if he plays this year in Baltimore, it's going to be his last year. Uh, The Nats took a very different tack. They signed Bryce Harper last year in early May to his 2018 contract at $21 million. I know one thing that Manny Machado isn't happy about that discrepancy. Uh, Do you think that may help 
down the road with a negotiation with Bryce Harper, or do you see him gone as much as we see Machado gone? Well, I think it, I remember thinking at the time it certainly won't hurt their chances yeah. to maybe extend an olive branch. I mean, that was unusual. You don't very unusual yeah. signing a guy arbitration in midseason. You know, months and months before that even is an issue. So. I thought that was a little bit of a, hey, let's extend an olive branch yeah, here and maybe exactly. show you some goodwill. Now, will it matter in the end? I don't know if it will or not. I, I've always said from the beginning that when it comes to where Bryce is going to end up going, whether he wants to stay or not, it really is less about money and more about where does he believe this franchise is and where is it going. If he goes somewhere else, it's going to be to an iconic franchise that has history and has won titles. Um, the kind of place where they play in front of a sellout crowd every night. It's going to be L.A., Chicago, New York, maybe a Boston or San Francisco. That's really what we're talking about. He's not going to go to Seattle or Milwaukee just because they offer him the most money. I don't think that's going to be the case. So what's the best way for the Nationals to convince him to stay? Yes, they have to make him a competitive offer, but really it's about how do they do on the field. Um, Can they get themselves over this hump and not just be a team that gets to the playoffs, but actually wins once they get there. Can it be the kind of thing where the whole city becomes uh, enraptured with this team? This town desperately wants somebody to win. It's been so long since any of their teams not only won a title, but even reached uh, a the semifinal championship round. game. Yeah. I, don't, I don't suppose you're counting about the uh, the world team tennis down there, right? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm ignoring them, and I'm ignoring the soccer team because I know they get upset by these things. But uh, the four major sports, no. Uh, it's been a it's been a long time, and people here just desperately want one of these teams to do it. And I really believe if one of them can get over that hump, it's going to be a huge deal, especially the Nationals. By the way, so I ha- oh, go ahead. You you have you seen the soccer stadium yet? Uh, Re- recently, it's in December or so. Yeah, I mean it's coming along. It's com- you know our par- you know our media parking lot is gone. Well, I've heard rumors. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> I'm just bringing up important topics. I have a question for you real quick. You, do you still have a Hall of Fame vote? Yes, I do. Uh, you want to give us a glimpse or not? Uh, I, I don't officially release it until the actual results are announced uh, in a couple weeks, but um, here, here's, here's what I'll tell you. you but can look but at since, since it's me. <laughs> yeah. You, you can look at how I voted in the past and have a sense of who among the returning candidates I'm going to vote for, and I know we can have a whole hour-long discussion on this one. There's a certain pitcher who spent the first half of his career in Baltimore and the second half of his career in New York who I have not voted for in the past. Um, I struggle with it every year because I keep looking for a reason can, to can, get him over the hump. Can I give and, you that reason? Can I, Mark? Please, yes, give me. I, I'm looking for Do one. a really close comparison when you, when you factor in D.H., steroid era and compare Tom Glavin's numbers take away just one t- one category wins look mm-hmm. at the amount of innings strikeouts winning percentage versus the winning percentage of his team i think mike Bucina has really been undervalued he's really close this year so uh, and, and the other thing the other thing too is it's amazing I find out and and I saw a stat or somebody put up something last night on TV where of a hundred and I don't know thirty ballots that they know of 
he's at 73.4%. Now, yeah, I he, certainly don't expect that to be the number when all the final vote tallies are. Do you are. think he's going to go over, or do you think he's going to recede? Uh, I, 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 I think, think he's, he's going to be I in the high 60s. I, think, I still think he's going to be in the 60s, Yeah. Uh, and I really don't think he'll get in for about another two years. But the one thing, Mark, I think that is happening is all of a sudden these Sabre Matrix guys are really, you know, taking a liking to his numbers and, and what he did throughout his career in that regard. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I do think he's going to get in eventually. He's on the right track. And I think the more uh, new voters that come in are appreciating him more. And um, I, I, urge one th- I urge one thing, Mark, that, that topic I just, or that category, which isn't a category, is look at his winning percentage and add up the winning percentages of the team he, teams he played for versus Glavin's. Glavin was always on a great team. Mike Messina was not always on a great Baltimore team. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and, and I'll just address real quickly because I know this is, this is kind of at the crux of, of where I, I struggle with yeah. it, of I know, what I to do. And that is, um, yes, when you look at the overall numbers, you can compare him very favorably to guys who are not just in the Hall of Fame but were slam dunks. Yep. to make the Hall of Fame. And for me, and this applies to other players that I vote on as well, that I've uh, voted on or not voted for in the past, um, I tend to look more at individual seasons than what the final total is. You can get to that final total different ways, and I want to see dominant seasons along the way. Yeah. And while Messina was consistently very good, I'm not trying to take anything away from him in that regard. What the hang-up for me usually boils down to that there weren't enough of those dominant, great seasons that earned the kind of recognition that you would expect of a Hall of Famer, what? like top Cy Young votes, first place, second place, those kinds of things. And it's close. Believe me, I struggle with this yep. every year. Um, right. that, that really is almost the, the, the little tipping point for me, is that rather than what the career total numbers are, I look at Seasons within a career, and how many dominant seasons were there? All so, did, right. did we you, got, we did got you vote re- for him or not? He, no, he hasn't voted for. All him right, yet. well, that'll do it for Mark Zuckerman here. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, many thanks. We went over on you. Really appreciate the time, and maybe we can grab you once the season starts uh, up again. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mark.